Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come again to the scriptures, we thank you that it is not just the word of men, but the word of God. And we pray that as we think about it together, that you will teach us, speak to us, build us according to the pattern you have and the plans you have for us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we've come some distance into this letter of Paul's, known as 1 Thessalonians, to see a number of things along the way. First, from chapter 1, the theme of gospel power, how the message of the gospel transformed the lives of these very people who heard the message from Paul, the apostle. Then, from the first part of the second chapter, we heard about gospel ministry and how Paul and the others who were with him lived in such a way among the people that their lives made an impression upon the people as big as the message that they'd been given to proclaim and pass on. Now of the many things that are important in life, surely one of the most important has to be character. Just as Mark Twain once wrote, character is the architect of achievement. People can and will often talk about what they do or where they've been or who they know or what they understand, but more importantly than all of these is surely who you are. For your character and your integrity speak louder above anything else that you can come up with. As we've seen and continue to see both in state and federal politics, the importance of character and integrity continue to be placed before the voting public. In our text today, from chapters 2 and 3, we find that the focus shifts somewhat to explore the character of the Apostle Paul as well as the believers in Thessalonica, causing us in response to examine ourselves and in doing so ask ourselves if we match up to the standard that's given to us. In other words, the text paints for us a portrait of people that I want to call gospel people. Gospel power, gospel ministry, Gospel people, and by gospel people I mean people whose lives have been thoroughly affected, for the better of course, thoroughly affected, or should I say transformed, by the gospel. The question that I want to ask you this morning is, what do gospel people look like? And do you fit the portrait? Three things follow. First, it's evident in verse 13 that gospel people desire spiritual food from the word of God. They desire spiritual food from the word of God. In this verse, Paul says, and so we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in new believers. 
high on the list of reasons Paul had to give thanks for in relation to these believers at Thessalonica was the way that the word of God had been received by them and how it had changed them. Now there have no doubt been many people around the world who have heard the gospel but have not received it nor been changed by it. I think of how Jesus taught us in the parable of the sower that receiving the word was only one of the four ways in which people responded to the gospel. Some heard but did not respond at all. The seed was snatched away. Some heard and responded only for a short time and because the seed sprouted, it soon withered and died. Others heard and responded positively but they don't go the distance because the weeds grow up with it and choke the plant and it dies. Others, however, hear the word and receive it and it produces in them a harvest. And so no one, not even the Apostle Paul, could point point the finger at these believers at Thessalonica and outline any deficiency in their response to the word of God. It could not be said of them that they only believed to escape the difficulties of the world or to give themselves an easier time because believing the gospel brought a world of pain upon them. Now we read about, read about this a fortnight ago when we considered the first chapter of this letter. There in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1, Paul wrote, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The full conviction that Paul spoke of then was no doubt this complete transformation that came upon these people. That is a gospel transformation which turned them away from idols that they once worshipped to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. As I said then, Uh, This was not something that was a natural progression, as if worshipping idols led them to the knowledge of the truth. Rather, there was a complete and total act of turning, of repentance in turning away from error and embracing the fullness of the truth. So the Thessalonians set a very high standard in regard to this, according to verse 13. They accepted the message we read there, not as the word of men, but as it is the word of God. Now let's think about that for a moment. These believers recognised that which Paul preached did not originate from him, but it came from God. J.I. Packer says here that in preaching, the word of God delivers through the preacher a message from God to his people about God and godliness. Did you notice what Packer didn't say? He didn't say that the preacher delivers a message about God and godliness. He says the word of God delivers through the preacher a message from God about God and godliness. And so Paul is underlining here that these believers understood that this gospel was not something that came from Paul. It wasn't about Paul. It was something Paul received and was passing on to them. Well, I wonder if this enters your mind and how much it does. It's said that a preacher is invisible for six days and incomprehensible on the seventh. But the preaching of the word is vital. 
And when we gather under God's word on the Lord's day, preaching creates an encounter between God and the hearer of his word with the preacher, an instrument or a tool, or if you prefer a fool, if you want, to do that. But it's not just on Sundays, is it, that we take in the word of God, hopefully. If you only ate one meal a week, your physical health would surely suffer and you'd be weak and listless. So too, if your spiritual life, your spiritual intake was based on one sermon a week, it would show all kinds of weaknesses and poverty and listlessness. That's why a regular intake of the word, receiving it, reading it, hearing it, meditating upon it, speaking about it is so vital to spiritual health and growth. Think about that in relation to your conversion. If you know, you can pick your conversion story. It was the word of God that spoke to you. It was the word of God that brought you to life, wasn't it? The living and active word of God that Hebrews 4 says is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, if the word of God brought you to life, will it not be the word of God that continues to bring you life? There is something dynamic about the scriptures. Other Christian books are great. By all means, go and look at the books on the table. But there's something dynamic about the scriptures. It sets it apart from all other literature and material. The scriptures are the living word of God. And we need to be reminded that our job is to be faithful to it. And God's job to use it how he pleases as Isaiah 55 reminded us this morning, sending it forth in whatever form or shape it comes. The second thing in verses 14 to 16 is that the gospel people desire to remain faithful to the Son of God. Faithful to the Son of God. This was demonstrated among the lives of these believers. According to verse 14, what happened? They became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, even though they endured great suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as did the Jews, that is, the ones in Judea. Now, the first thing we could say about this is that the proof of the genuineness of these believers and a sure sign that they truly believed the gospel is that they were more than ready to suffer for it. Had they believed for the wrong reasons, whether that be in order to make a name for themselves or to line their own pockets or to escape the trials of the world, this persecution would certainly have sorted it out long before this. The Acts of the Apostles clearly portrays for us that whenever and wherever people believed in Christ, whether in Thessalonica or Galatia or Corinth, that all sorts of persecution followed that faith. And persecution does its work, doesn't it? It sorts out the men from the boys. 
It probes the genuineness of what is professed. It causes us to examine if we really do believe and just how deep that belief goes. In relation to this persecution, Paul can't help but note the connection between what these believers were suffering and what the apostles and the Lord Jesus and the prophets before them also suffered. And we could remember here that of all the apostles, all of those who proclaimed Jesus, all of them endured persecution to the point of death. Some crucified in the usual way, some crucified upside down, some beheaded, some exiled, but all of them, all of them faithful unto death. All endured and yet remain true to the gospel. And this was the position that the believers at Thessalonica were now putting themselves in. In becoming Christians, they put themselves in the firing line. They not only became estranged from their own culture and people, they were called to give their lives for Christ, to put their lives on the line. They were prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ and to die. Unless they think their situation hopeless... Paul reminds them in verse 15 and 16 that those who enforced this persecution, who pitted themselves against the people of God, actually pitted themselves against God. Paul refers to the fact that the wrath of God has come upon these enemies of the gospel at last. We're not quite sure what Paul meant by that, whether something had happened and some kind of persecution had broken out against them. Or maybe he's speaking in terms of Romans 1 where he reminds us that God's wrath is seen in the ever-increasing entanglement that sin brings to those who harden their hearts against the gospel. Just as persecution was common for believers in the first century and so it remains today a true story, an ever-increasing amount as we've heard. All around the world, believers are being put to death now for the sake of Jesus. The estimate stands, since Jesus went back into heaven, 700 million martyrs for Christ. Currently, as best as I could calculate, it's 13 a day around the world. If you don't get the Barnabas Fund's prayer notes, please do. We have a supply. I meant to bring a magazine with me, but they're there. They're in the foyer. The Barnabas Fund prayer notes. There's a whole table set up in the hall. These remind you and they ground you in the reality of what it means to be a believer in the world, in some parts of the world, something that may well soon be our experience. Are you ready for that? Do you think about that? That when the time comes and when persecution is on your plate, at your front door, what are you going to do? Have you got the spiritual strength and the fortitude to stand? When your life is threatened, Will you say, as Luther wrote in his hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, knowing the body they may kill? 
It's a great challenge to be faithful to the Lord, come what may. Third, in the longer section from verse 17 of chapter 2 to verse 5 of chapter 3, we learn there that gospel people desire fellowship with the people of God. In the last message from the first part of chapter 2 last week, we saw how Paul felt toward these believers at Thessalonica as the complete spiritual parent, both as a mother and a father towards these spiritual children. But here in this verse 17 and onwards, the shoe is on the other foot because the word he uses to describe how he felt about being separated from these believers is a word that shows that the separation was a painful one. Perhaps it was this outbreak of persecution that caused Paul to be dragged away from them. Perhaps it was something else, but either way there was this sense of separation anxiety that he felt about them. Such was the intense feelings that Paul had toward them, even though verse 17 tells us it was only for a short time and verse 18 tells us that Paul kept on making every effort to see them again and verse 1 tells us that this separation reached the point where Paul and the others could stand it no more. This all just underlines the size and the depth of the love that he had for these believers. He calls them in verse 19, our hope, our joy and the crown in which we will glory. Now if nothing else, this should force us to face the question, how are you going in relation to other believers with whom you fellowship. How are you going? See, according to Paul's example, God's people, gospel people, love other gospel people. And they love other people. We learn that next week. And when I use that term love, I don't mean the term tolerate or put up with, but a term that indicates that this affection we have for each other should be real and bigger and higher and more intense than any other relationships we know. I know you've heard from my lips before the small rhyme that goes, and I thank Leo for telling me this one, to live above with saints we love, oh, that would be glory, but to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. But you may not have heard the comment that Charles Colson wrote where he likens the church to Noah's Ark and says the smell within it would be intolerable if it wasn't for the storm going on outside of it. Sadly, the situation is that there is a smell, there can be a smell in the church and we can be the worst advertisement for the gospel there is. It takes a strong kind of love to keep on loving the people of God. And this pandemic has certainly brought that into the open, hasn't it? more than ever, revealing that in many cases our desire for fellowship with others might not be as strong as it ought to be. But note too that Paul not only wanted to be with these believers, he also wanted to see them grow. There could have been a number of reasons that Paul wanted fellowship with them. He could have wanted to see them boost his own self sense of self-worth or importance or because 
they placed him on a pedestal and he liked that or because he could walk among them as a king among peasants. But verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3 indicate this to be not the case. Paul's major concern was that these believers be strengthened and encouraged in their faith so that in their time of trial they would not be unsettled but remain strong. The term Paul uses here reminds me not only of a parent's longing and oversight, longing for and oversight of and concern for their child, but of a gardener nurturing along a young plant that has just reached the stage where it's about to be planted, it's leaving the hothouse, it's about to be planted in the garden, facing the dangers of wind, of storm, of pest and disease. This is what Paul is longing for these believers, that they be established in the faith and firm. And like a wise gardener, Paul knew what this young plant needed. That's why out of his great concern for them, he sent a co-worker. He sent Timothy to go and care for them. The point is that Paul did all this out of an intense longing for their spiritual welfare, taking steps to counter Satan's measures against them. He didn't call for a special prayer meeting to overcome demonic powers. He sent them a gospel worker and he did so at great cost for it meant him being alone in Athens. The we that he refers to in verse 1 is generally agreed to be like the royal we, meaning that Paul was direct of Timothy's company for the sake of these believers. Learn from this, that one of God's weapons to counter Satan's attempts to undermine and to bring down believers is to provide for them a Timothy, someone ready to come alongside them build them up in the gospel, someone grounded and mature in the faith who can be an encouragement and a help and an assistance in growth. Maybe being an apostle like Paul or a pastor teacher like Timothy isn't your calling, but what your calling is, is this in Christ. None of us are islands and all of us are responsible for each other and all of us have the responsibility of pastoring each other Hebrews 10.24 tells us, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. Something that is in your reach even without formal training because gospel people will aim for that. They will be an encourager among the brethren. One of the metaphors found in the scriptures about the scriptures themselves, among a few others, is that of a mirror. And it's not too hard to see why. The first mirrors were made from highly polished metals such as copper and brass and nowadays much more refined than that. But it's not so much what they're made from that makes a mirror a good metaphor for the scriptures but really what they do. See, mirrors do not transmit light. You don't go into a dark room and go up to the mirror. It doesn't transmit light, but it reflects light. The angle at which light strikes a mirror is exactly equal to the angle at which the light is reflected back. Therefore, the image reflected is a mirror image. 
of the original. But mirrors only do their work, of course, when you spend time looking into them. And unless the mirror you're looking in is in the Hall of Mirrors at Luna Park or the Discovery Centre or at a circus, a mirror, like the scriptures, does not lie. It gives an accurate portrayal of the person or thing standing before them. It shows the good along with the bad. Mirrors are tools for reflection. Mirrors show what we look like and do not hide the negative from the positive. And texts like these leave us with one question to answer. Do you fit the portrait of what it means to be gospel people? If you gaze into the word of God and you see these characteristics of receiving the word, of being faithful to the Lord, of being an encourager to his people, do you see them in yourself? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Do you see Christ in me at all? And that leaves us with the question, of course, that the text demands that we reflect on. Do you fit the portrait of a gospel person as these believers did? And if after gazing at your own reflection, your answer is inclined to be in the affirmative, remember too that others can see your reflection, as can the Lord to whom the scriptures will and do ultimately compare you. The point of it all, that we become like what we should be, God's people, reflecting the wonder of the grace of the gospel. Let's pray we would do that. Heavenly Father, we bring thanks to you that your word is a transforming word, We thank you especially for the gospel of Christ that transforms us from what we once were to what we are going to be. We're not there yet. We're not fully developed yet, not fully transformed in any sense. But hopefully, according to your grace and by your spirit, increasingly along the path towards it. Help us as we thank you for your word to us this morning. Help us to grow in the likeness of what we should be like. And if we find as we gaze into that mirror of your word today that there are deficiencies, please, uh, by your grace, forgive us and help us by your spirit to work hard at overcoming them that we too might reflect the image of Christ being formed within us. And we pray this for his sake. Amen.